Welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 113, and it's all about adapting your courses to in a new world of ChatGPT and GitHub Copilot. My name is Sean Tiber, and I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. Well, welcome uh, to the show again, Kelly. It's been actually not that long since we recorded, but it feels like so much has happened in between. <laughs> I know, just cram it in in the summer. Two weeks, less than two weeks. We were like right less than two weeks. But yeah, yep. it seems ages. It's flying by. And as we're thinking about uh, you know the, the new school year and all that's coming, we're joined by two experts who are going to help us uh, try to figure out how to create your courses and how to deliver the best learning experience in a world that's inhabited by ChatGPT, GitHub Copilot, large language models in general. So I'd like to welcome Philip Guo and Sam Lau to the show. Welcome, both of you. We're happy to have you here. Yeah, it's great to be here. I guess I'm, I, I've been here before, and but it's, Sam, it's Sam's first time. Yeah, hey, it's great to be here as well. Yeah, we're really excited to have both of you here. Um, I know that this is a, a topic that's been getting a, a lot of uh, discussion and a lot of conversation. And it's been interesting to me to observe um, the number of people who are professing to be experts in this space without any sort of empirical data whatsoever, right? So what I'm excited to talk about with each of you is that you have actually been gathering data. You've been talking, you've been working on what's really happening and how um, how things can be different in this world. Um, so, uh, you know, Philip is a associate professor of cognitive science at UC San Diego. You've been working uh, for quite a long time in this space around, you know, computer interaction and programming tools, online learning. So, um, you know, really, I, I think you've got a lot of great background here. Um, you know, also, uh, if you haven't used it already, you probably should be the creator of Python Tutor, which is a fabulous way to uh, figure out what your code is actually doing. So uh, it's been uh, it's been something that I've shown everyone from an eighth grader to a college intern to adults, and they've all loved it. So, you know, we've said it before, but thank you so much for making that tool. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I'm glad you all enjoyed it. Yeah, I mean, it's been that's been running for quite a while now, and I think that's you know, it's it's more than relevant than ever nowadays, right? With you know, with these intelligent tutoring systems that large language models are enabling, you know, kind of coupling that, think about how do you couple that with runtime visualizations and stuff. And that's something that, you know, myself and Sam and others have been thinking about a bunch recently. So, Yeah. Well, welcome back to the show. I also want to introduce Sam Lau, who is new to the show. Sam is also a um, teaching professor at UC San Diego in the Data Science Institute. Um, I have no idea how to pronounce the uh, the name of the Data Science Institute, so maybe you can help <laughs> us with that. But you've been um, teaching a lot of data science courses at UC Berkeley, UC San Diego, and, and looking at different ways that data science can be taught because there's so much demand for it right now. Um, and you've created a tool that I, I am just finding out about this week called Pandas Tutor, which I'm kind of excited to go play with. You're so behind the time, Sean, so behind. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it was yeah, I just did a data um, science boot camp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, the pronunciation of it is Haligiolu, as far as I know. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna have to rehearse that a few times, I think, before I can get it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then the Times Tutor tool, um, like Python Tutor, was meant to help people who are learning how to write Python code for data science for the first time. Um, it was also designed for instructors to prepare some lecture slides because we saw the instructors 
spending a lot of time fiddling around with their arrows and boxes on their lecture slides. I thought we could um, speed up that process for them. Very cool. Very cool. Well, you are also um, have also authored a um, a paper about uh, the you know the effects of ChatGPT, GitHub Copilot. Um, on the learning process. And we're going to get into that topic and the meat of that conversation in a minute. We're going to start with the wins of the week, which is one of my favorite things to do. Um, so Sam, since you're brand new to the show and uh, our guest, we're going to make you go first. Sure, sure. My wins of the week are, well, I've been learning woodworking for the first time. So I learned how to use like a basic table saw, like a miter saw, learn how to screw some boards together. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. So that's my win. That's so great. That. I'm it all like into I'm, the hands-on uh, stuff. It's like awesome just to mm -hmm. step away during the summertime. I, I Someone asked me when was the last time you coded? And I was like, oh, I think it's been like three or four weeks, <laughs> three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing a lot of hands-on stuff, gardening, home repair, home organization. My son does, um, uh, not welding. I always say welding. Smithing, blacksmith, blacksmithing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so like woodworking is one of our fun things to build stuff. So that's awesome. Good tool. Good uh, tool to have in your toolbox. Absolutely. Philip, how about you? Any uh, any big wins the last uh, week or two? Or even little wins? Yeah. We'll take those. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I had something like cool, you know, some real world cool thing, but it's actually much nerdier, I think, which is <laughs> um, I recently published, actually today it came out. It's a, an, another blog post for O'Reilly about um, my own adventures of using ChatGPT for doing more of a end-to-end -end kind of, you know, web development task. Um, I can send you all the link to put in the show notes later. Um, so this is in addition to the blog post that Sam and I wrote about the uh, about our research paper. So that just came out today, uh, which was a big win because that that was a long form post that I spent probably a week or two kind of uh, drafting up. So so that that was a win for today. <laughs> nice. Awesome. It's always always good to see it go live, right? Yeah. Yeah. Question for you and see if you do what I do. Do you write the paper, then jump it, dump it into chat GPT and then put it into Grammarly and do all that fun stuff too? Or is it just me? <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting because I tried, I mean, first of all, I think for, you know, for longer form things, it can't handle as well, right? Because still you can't just throw in, you know, an entire 10 page thing. Um, also, frankly, I, mean, I haven't found, I mean, I, don't, I mean, Sam speaks to this, like, I haven't found it to be super useful in technical writing because I think it's more tuned for like business writing, kind of the more, you know, kind of, you know, popular everyday thing. So I found that even if you try to use it for technical writing, it just ends up sounding a bit strange, right? Kind of, it ends up sounding a bit um, artificial, <laughs> like, not to make a good uh, a pun about it. But yeah, and I, I, what I do do is I, I put it things in Google Docs. I just use the Google Docs grammar and spell checker because I found that mm -hmm. that's pretty lightweight and catches most obvious things. Um, but yeah, I haven't used anything too heavy. They have now that uh, help me write draft popping up in Google Docs. So it's, it's quite a, it, <laughs> but it always messes up your writing completely. So but it's like a it's like a deadly circle for me. I fix it in Grammarly, then somewhere else, somewhere fixes it, and then my English teachers all say to me, "You can't do that. No Oxford commas and stuff." <laughs> but anyways, Them, I digress. Them's fighting words. <laughs> 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 all right, Kelly, what's your week? Uh, when of the uh, week? So I found 
I like I've been hooked on AI. That's been my my pastime for the whole summer, just really just investigating stuff. And I found magicschool.ai um by Adil Khan, the guy that I, I'm assuming he's the guy that did Replit too, because they're both, but he doesn't claim it to be both at the same time. So he just kind of passes back and forth. Um it is phenomenal. It is going to be a teacher tool. Talk about teacher tool. I'm not even talking about chat GPT. I'm not talking about prompt engineering. Put everything aside. Um, it makes rubrics. <laughs> I think, I don't know <laughs> if I said this before, but it makes rubrics. And yes, um, it doesn't make a rubric that you're just going to put in and spit out and it's going to be great. Some people may do that, but it does type everything out for you that you can then um, tweak it. it. It does questions. It does like text. Um, yeah. And it, it's free. So nice. <laughs> and so he, it's like, you, you can't help that. And I found that and I, I sent it to my supervisor and it, it is, yes, it's, it's off. It's amazing. Um, they're trying to get districts to get in there, obviously to do a paid version, which would mean that you would have a team sort of connected, but yeah, I don't know. Philip and Philip's looking at it now. He's all <laughs> I can see. He's deep in. Um, there's about thirty or forty different things that it does for teachers. Writing emails. Um, I think uh, public school teachers might like it for the uh, the accommodation stuff that it has to write. We'll see. I don't use half the stuff in there as, as a CS teacher, but the rubrics are always nice, especially if you're going to build some projects and stuff. So nice. that was like a huge win for me. Very nice. All right. You? <laughs> I guess it's my turn. Um, my win is that I'm home. Uh, I was traveling <laughs> for about nine days, um, mostly for personal like vacation. I think it was the first um, vacation that my wife and I have had without kids and for an extended period of time in about 10 years. So um, it was a lot of travel. The vacation parts of it were amazing the waiting for airlines and being stuck in airports part was the opposite of that it was i think out of the five flights i had four of them were delayed by more than an hour so um i'm gonna call them out united you can do better i know you can <laughs> it was awful but the rest of it was great apparently they're having like flight issues with everybody so i'm excited to see if i get out tomorrow morning i'm traveling tomorrow it's my turn tag yep <laughs> so so yeah just just being home again after that much travel no matter how great um your your travel is it there's no place like home so i'm i'm glad to be here and glad to be home even though the ac is not working and i came back to like lightning strike damage and all kinds of stuff i'm still happy to be home <laughs> Well, hopefully this podcast will cheer you up. <laughs> oh, I'm 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 already excited. I'm I'm super um super happy to be talking about this topic. Um and because I think it really gets down to the real question, which is what is learning? Like what is that really and how do we make it happen? Right? Yeah. And I'm wow, excited that is a to big question. I mean, that's a, almost <laughs> as big as what is life, right? It's like what is right. life is probably the biggest question. What is learning? That's pretty big. Right. I mean, and that's that's I think where we can really get into this is um, and, and maybe a good starting point is, you know, um, I think the rise of Copilot, the rise of ChatGPT has really disrupted a lot of things that we have been doing for many, many years in the education space and specifically within the computer science education space. And so maybe let's start there with like, what is the nature of that disruption? What are we seeing and what are we struggling with? Um, as we are going through this change. 
Um, Sam, do you want to take it from there? Put, put, put you on the spot since you're the one growing up in this generation, right? Because Sam, you know, I, I feel old now. But, you know, Sam has kind of come of age in this generation, and like he's he's now starting as professor and you know teaching students in this generation. Do you want to get started with that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think for um, for instructors, the big wake up call with AI was realizing, oh crap, if I put my homework or my exams to this tool, it actually gives me the right answer most of the time, like maybe 90% of the time. And then, of course, then you start thinking, well, that means all of my students could use this and kind of fudge their way through the homework um, or the exams and like, what do I do now? Um, so I think I think when Copilot and, and ChatGPT came onto the scene, um, it was definitely a wake up call for people doing instructing because a lot of the problems that we put in our assignments um, are the sort of questions that ChatGPT and, and Copilot are exactly like tuned for. Um, so they perform generally very well and it's caused a lot of us to rethink, okay, do I keep doing what I'm doing right now or do I need to adjust? Yeah, and I was thinking like, just backing up a second on that, do 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 well and do I adjust? That whole cognitive learning point um, cause I'm going to bring in your cognitive science. So I want to back it up a little bit. It's like, do I, if you're doing these problems, because you set these problems as a computer science teacher, because you know, like these are the problems that's going to step you through in order to solve larger problems, right? It's designed that way. And you, you can't kind of start with a, a new student and all the way jump to a, you know, here's my study and I have proper data viz and everything's, I understand everything. You have to go through these little stop, these little like points, these checkpoints. And as a professor, if you're pushing them through these points and the kids are jumping over those points and using uh, an AI assistant, that's gotta be a little bit scary because one, you know, like you're, you're, you're really working and you have this plan of learning for children or students or adult young old, you know, you guys are older students, but you have this plan for them and they've skipped it. And even though, you know, you want to skip it too, because we're all human, it, it's part of that learning growth. So is that part of like the, the study that you were going into as well? Yeah, for sure. I think, um, having students skip those kind of like foundational steps was a real concern for everyone that we talked to. So we did an interview study with, um, 20 instructors who teach programming in like, like first year programming classes um, all across the world and like every country except for Antarctica, not the many computer science classrooms in Antarctica, um, but everywhere else we managed to hit. And um, across the board, they, they expressed the same concern, which was, okay, if students use ChatGPT to skip over that like process of struggling with those easier questions and when they get to the medium questions and the hard questions how will they have the tools the like the mental tools to, to tackle them um yeah so i think what we found was that it it was very concerning to instructors and they had um a very wide range of views on how to approach it um going forward in the longer term ranging from okay i'm going to say my syllabus it's banned forever and if you use it, I'm gonna consider it cheating um, all the way up to, um, well, it's like 
even if I tell students not to do it, they're going to use it anyway. Might as well embrace it and, and embed it into my curriculum itself. So pretty much the whole spectrum of that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting the way that you've you've kind of grouped that, right? The the short term versus longer term, you know, goals and and plans, right? Um, I I think it it like we're definitely in that you know early stage, right? Where the shared concern by everyone is like, please don't cheat, right? <laughs> like, don't don't cheat. Um, it it causes so many problems, right? But I think the in the best situation, the problem is like you've you've skipped over the actual learning, right? You've shortcut the learning process and you didn't actually get the benefit of going through the problem solving process or the learning process or whatever the the out the learning outcome that we wanted would be. And and what and we're not even yet to the point of trying to figure out how how we uh, either embrace or resist AI as you've put in the longer term plans. And, and I think we're all starting to think about it, but whether we're the instructors or whether we're the learners, it's really hard for us to predict which path is going to be best at this point. Um, I think in most cases, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, Philip, do you want to say more to this? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this is a great conversational thread. I mean, I think that I love this focus at least right now on the, um, you know, what is the purpose of giving these small self-contained programming assignments for intro CS? Like the purpose is not to make something useful, quote unquote, right? Because like, you know, you know, if you're in an intro class, you're probably not making a brand new app or a brand new thing. You're doing kind of the equivalent of, you know, math exercises or drills or writing exercises. And like the, the output in a sense is a change in your brain, right? That's the ideal thing that by doing these exercises and learning about how you know lists or dictionaries in Python work, and Python works, um, you're trying to like reconfigure your brain somehow to know, oh, you can actually put things in order, or you can map one thing to another, or you can look up something by a key and get a value, and you're using the programming to learn these computational concepts. And you're absolutely right that you know these AI tools can do it all for you. But then again, you know, the, I guess the human analogy is if you just hired an expert to sit next to you and do your homework for you, then they could obviously do all the homework for you, but you didn't learn a thing. So right. um, I, I think that, you know, these AI tools are really good. You know, one mental model that they are like a very smart person you hired to sit next to you and do your stuff for you. So that's maybe useful if you are, if you're a professional programmer or a scientist, you know, if like, like the, if you're a professional scientist and you're like, I need to get this, you know, matplotlib, Panda's graph working. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to, I don't want to look up on Stack Overflow for an hour to see how to tweak the graph. Can I just write a prompt and say, give me a bar chart that has this vertical axis, this horizontal axis, this binning, whatever, and it pops out the code and then you can tweak the code. Like that is a great productivity boost for the scientists because they don't care about learning about matplotlib and all the API functions. But if you're in a, you know, if you're in a first year uh, computer science class, wanting to learn fundamentals, then if the tool does it all for you, then you haven't really done much of learning. So, I mean, the devil's advocate, the other side is that some people are advocating, you know, we'll get more in this later, that maybe we should think about transitioning the skills that people have to learn, you know, the learning objectives, right? So in one view of the future, the learning objective could be, how do we learn to talk to these AI tools and do prompt engineering and prompt development in the most intelligent and useful way. And some people made an analogy to machine language and assembly language, right? So like, 
you know, nowadays we no longer teach students how to program ones and zeros or in low level assembly language because we have Python and C++ and Java and stuff. So there's one view of the future where these LLM based languages where you're writing kind of in English or maybe using some GUIs and stuff, maybe that's the future of programming in a certain domain. So then we should teach people how to do that better instead of teaching people say Python or Java or whatever. And, you know, I think that the reality would be a compromise where, you know, there will still be just like nowadays, there's still a role for C programming and maybe some kind of, you know, low level assembly programming in very niche domains like in you know, microcontrollers and operating system kernels. But most people don't need to learn that. And most people are doing Python and Java and stuff. Maybe in the future, most people will be doing LLM stuff, but then there'll still be people who need to know Python and Java in order to build the tools for LLM and such. So that was just a large swath of stuff I was able to respond to. You, you just summarized everything that's going in my head all the time. I'm so wishy-washy about AI. Like I am first, I'm like this huge advocate. Yeah, let's, let's put it into the curriculum. Let's let the kids be these great agents of change and they're going to make so many things. And then my other side is like that cognitive science side. Yeah, but what about the myelin and how are they going to reinforce those neurons that are going back and those learning paths? And I think that um, on some level, a lot of teachers are in that path of that, you know, here comes this AI tsunami that everyone's quoting. And what are the, what are the educators doing? Are we putting out fires after it? Because not many people are having the PD for it and they just are reading what they're reading. Or are we, are we kind of surfing this wave and, and going with the flow? Um, and I want to go back and let you tell more about the study and what, what you guys, but that's, I can imagine that's kind of that, that path that a lot of educators have been, you know, flipping back and forth on. Well, I guess I'll put Sam on the spot. You know, Sam is just starting to, you know, he's starting as a professor this fall. And I mean, he's obviously taught a lot of classes, even as a student, but like, you know, what, what is Sam planning to do with this? So I'll put Sam on the spot. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I mean, Kelly, I, I feel you really like very much so because personally, if I had infinite time, I would take the class I'm teaching this fall and integrate um, AI tools in it like right now. If I could, if I could, wage, if I could wave a magic wand and give students assignments that were like crafted so that when they work with AI tools, they won't get quite the right answer and they'll have to think more carefully about what um, ChatGPT is giving them in order to actually get the right answer, then I think I would love to do that. I think it would be a really interesting learning experience for them. And also to even show them that, okay, I mean, at the end of the day, programming is, you can, from like a really high level, like you type something into your computer to tell it what to do, and it does something that's not quite what you want, and you fine tune that over, over some iterations. And I think writing programs with a large language model is, you know, from, in that sense, pretty similar to how we programmed before. It's just that the type of thing that we type into the computer has changed. Um, so if possible, I would love to do that. But practically speaking, class is starting relatively soon. I don't really have enough time to go through all the assignments and the lectures and change everything all at once. Um, so yeah, I'm caught, in the, I'm caught in that tension too between these are the way the assignments are. They've been written for a time before AI um, and I need to 
like for better or for worse, I pretty much have to use them because otherwise I don't have, I don't, I don't have enough time to create better alternatives. And at the same time, I want to tell students about a future that's coming up for them. Um, so I think for me, the challenge I'm thinking about is, okay, well, assignments are the way they are. Um, is there a way to like integrate LLMs a little bit? And if so, how much of that is possible or how much should I allow? And in the future, what, what things should I prioritize in teaching in order to make that transition? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I think like based on what you're, what you're both sharing here is, you know, and, I, and I'm kind of keying off of what Philip said around compromise. Right. And then also Sam, what you're saying around, you know, trying to add a little bit to it. Right. Um, I think the temptation is to treat these as two like discrete binary outcomes, right? Like it's, it's one or the other, you can either have all AI or no AI, but like, a, a light dusting of AI is pretty cool too, right? Um, having a having a blend, a compromise, a way to include it and acknowledge and and you know respect AI in the process and and respect the student to know that you know when they get stuck, right, or when they get like in a place where they don't have enough time and they don't have enough brain brain power going to be able to solve that problem, where do they go, right? ChatGPT is a pretty easy alternative to probably get a, a B plus on the assignment, right? So, so how do you acknowledge that? How do you incorporate that in there and, and be transparent with the students as well to be able to say like, look, there are reasons why you would want to solve this yourself, right? Like, because it'll help you understand the concepts better or because the learning that you get will be better. And then the next time you use ChatGPT, you'll be more effective at using it, right? So it's, there's like, that and the tricky part is knowing where that balance is because it's ever changing, right? And knowing how to use it and where to use it. Yeah, that's a great point, Sean. Yeah, and I think that sure. from the instructors that we interviewed, one kind of compromise solution. Also, I like Sam's point about the practicality of it, right? I mean, I mean, you all know, you know at the K twelve level, you you probably even have more time constraints, right? It's like you wish you could redo the curriculum, but you you, know, you got to be running the class next week, right? And yeah. Um, and I think that from what I, we've heard, this is kind of a composite from several instructors we interviewed. Um, you know, one, one idea is you know, you, they already have a class going, right? They're teaching intro CS class, intro programming class. They have a curriculum going. Now the ChatGPT stuff is coming about. One thing that they've done is, um, you know, some instructors have said, you know, as an optional thing, play around with ChatGPT and report back on what you think, right? So like, you know, if you, uh, if you actually are using it, you should report on the homework that I did use it and maybe write a little reflection on it. And that the homework, one philosophy for teaching at the college level is that the homework assignments are really just formative exercises, right? They're really for you. Maybe they count for, you know, 10% of your grade or 20% of your grade, just as a nominal check thing, right? Just, mm -hmm. just, as long, just as a kind of a check to get you to do it. But most of your grade are the, you know, several midterm and final exams. So, and those are, you know, on paper, proctored in person and stuff. With the pandemic, it was a lot harder because people have to do remote exams. But now people are going back more in person. You know, one kind of standard story that people, that instructors are saying is that, you know, we're just kind of going old school, right? The paper exams are the way we assess summatively. Did you learn this concept, right? So paper exam says, you know, here's a linked list or here's a dictionary. You know, what does this do? You know, here's some code for Python. Here's some diagram. You know, what does this dictionary do? And in order to answer this, you know, presumably on paper, you have to understand how dictionaries work. And 
if the homework assignments, there's a bunch of dictionary homework assignments. If you're doing with ChatGPT, then it's all, it's your responsibility to learn how it works, right? Maybe you could actually use it productively. You can, you know, if you get stuck, you use ChatGPT for a hint. It could give you the answer, and then you can ask it, "Can you explain to me how how you got the answer?" And then it says, "Oh, here's how my code works." On line one, I make the dictionary, and then line two, here's the dictionary. Like ChatGPT is actually quite good at explaining in plain English how the code works. So uh, if students are going to use it constructively as sort of a personal tutor, if it helps them, then great, because the exam is where they really test their understanding. And, and that way, you get around kind of the cheating issues, at least on homework, because you're like, you know, you can do whatever you want the homework, but if you're not studying properly for exam, then you're going to get, you know, a bad grade on it. So yeah. that's what we've heard from some instructors as a short-term thing. Yeah, I just had a funny comment on there. I think I saw it on Instagram when someone was requiring their students to put their homework assignments in as handwritten, uh, whether it's essays or code. And so they built a handwriting robot <laughs> to write all of their <laughs> answers. So there's always another way around it. But you know, sometimes the, um, the cheating method is more intensive than the actual problem itself. Um, so I, but I like, I like where you're going with that because a lot of it is about the ability to demonstrate knowledge and how, less so about where the knowledge came from or how it was acquired. And I think, you know, one thing that I've thought about a lot as I made the transition from teacher to engineer and working with a lot of young engineers and, and still going through this learning process with them is, is asking them the question, is the code that you're producing an artifact of the process or is it the product of the process, right? So if learning is the product and my understanding is the product, that's the actual valuable outcome that I want, then all the code that you create along the way is the artifact, right? It's what you produce that demonstrates that it happened or it's just generated along the way versus the actual code that needs to be written. So it's a pretty clear answer. Like if you're engineering and you need to solve a problem, right? and the, the code that you create is the product, then ChatGPT is just another method for being able to produce that, right? Like it, it helps make it happen the same as if you had another engineer working with you to solve the problem. If, uh, and so it's perfectly valid. If your, your learning is the output, then you have to be careful about how you are um, using that tool because it may not produce the actual product that you want. It may produce a substandard product and you're focusing all your attention on these artifacts that don't really matter. And I think that's the key for, for beginners for, you know, whether it's a sixth grader or a 10th grader or a college student taking CS. And it's like that, that's why I get so wishy-washy because I, I'm, I am like, I'm sure people have heard this now on all my LinkedIn, they know I'm addicted to AI. Like it has been my life. I am, I am like learning, I'm following so many people and it's like my new passion. Right. But I worry about that, you know, the dopamine hits of those aha moments in our classroom, because if the students aren't doing those little desirable difficulties and struggling with the code and you know, getting those wins, those small wins of I did it. Oh my gosh. And here's my basic little um, program that I wrote that asked people to come to my party and collect it into a list versus the kid who just dumped it into chat GPT the night before and, and hit every point of the rubric. The kid that did the, you know, the basic one who learned it and was so proud of that, that they accomplished is not, you know, is going to get more of a dopamine hit and more of a connection to the 
like the passion of learning versus a child that dumped it into chat GPT. And even though it was beautiful code, like gorgeous, and you know, the, the app was great and the creative thinking may have been phenomenal. There might not be that same, there might not be, I'll say that cause I don't know, but there might not be that same level of, of dopamine and that addiction to coding. And that, that is one of my, like my biggest fear that the learning and the passion for learning will go flat. That's a great point, Kelly. Yeah, man, I think that this emotional aspect, and I, you know, as a longtime podcast listener, you know, that's been, you know, a recurring theme, right? When the two of you have been talking about your classroom experiences um, and this, the kind of emotional changes in kids and, you know, when they struggle with the problem, they figure it out and they're really proud of themselves and stuff. And again, like we we're talking about earlier, it's not like they made something completely novel that the world hasn't seen before. It's something that's quite simple, but for them, it's novel and it's interesting and it, it, the analogy, I guess, for this is like, you know, yeah, we're talking about, you know, crafting and wood, woodworking. And like, it's like the difference between, you know, you actually made your own table or your own piece of furniture or stuff versus you bought it at, you know, a store. And of course, you bought it at the store. It's like the AI plopped it for you. You, you know, have a Star Trek replicator. It made it for you fully formed, beautiful. Yeah, it's great. You, you have a device. You have a table or a chair you can use, but you didn't feel that craftsperson connection to it. And, you know, you didn't feel that pride and that problem solving that's needed to like put all the pieces together. And like, if you don't have the right parts and what do you do in that sort of engineering mindset? Yeah, I, I think that's totally a risk. Um, that's a with, with fantastic callback to Sam's win of the week too. I mean, that, that's really, <laughs> really a great yeah, analogy. Sam could have bought everything. <laughs> Sam could have just bought everything instead of making himself, right? Yeah. It, yeah, I, I, and I think that it really fits and it's a great way to think about it is, um, is this something you want to buy or something you want to build, right? And um, there are absolutely justifications for both approach, but the the real uh, outcome is having the ability to decide wisely about that, right? And having the, the wisdom to know when to buy and when to build and, and um I think it's a, it's a really great point. And I, I really love that analogy. It's very elegant. We're all processing. That was just yeah. like very. <laughs> well, I think we've solved everything. We can just. Uh... <laughs> I want to throw in because like, um, I want to take a moment because you guys uh, did, you, you talked about GitHub Copilot um, and ChatGPT, but there are more. There, it's not just those two. For example, like I just started playing with Anaconda Assistant. I got on the the beta release of it, and you got your little notebook in there, and it pops up and it says, "What do you want to do?" And I'm and you say, "Well, I want to import my table and make a bar," and it's right there in. <laughs> Phillips is like back in there looking, <laughs> but it's there, and um. I, I started playing with it. I lied when I said I hadn't code. I coded a couple of days ago with this AI assistant when I got the invite. But you're talking, here's your data science kids coming into university. You and tell them to install Anaconda Navigator. They, the Anaconda assistant is like right there coming out. They have um, this next generation of all kinds of data analysis. And then with hopes that I'm assuming, and again, this is a big assumption on Anaconda's part, that this data is going to be safe because the whole fear of everybody was like, if you put in your own data into chat GPT, that's like leaking it out and here's all your in personal in investments. But if you have Anaconda backing this and saying, 
you know, we're, we're a secure site. We, we have our downloads that are secure and here's our assistance. Um, there people are going to start hoping that our data is going to be safe there too. So, and you got, um, Replit, Replit's got a, a, a deployment on their AI assistant. And then someone told me about, um, which I haven't used the notable plugin on the back end of chat GPT 4.0. So you have not just GitHub and all these other things, but I'm waiting for VS code to say, Hey, listen, you don't have to do a download anymore. We're going cloud and here's your AI assistant, because if they're still, they're going back in the game, right? So they're going to lose, they're going to lose some power when you have these other people producing AIs. So what's your thoughts? I just threw a lot of stuff at you, but this, I told you I have an addiction this summer. <laughs> My thoughts are, uh, well, first, Anaconda Assistant looks cool. I actually haven't seen it before. I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I just signed up. I literally signed up as you're talking about it because I looked at it and I thought, wow, this looks really amazing. Um, which made me to, I think, I, I'm just thinking about it from the student's perspective, right? I, I think about students who are you know, seeing the news, seeing news articles, they see all these cool new tools that can do so much for people. They meet people like you who say, hey, I love AI tools. They help me in my work. Um, they get, help me get more, get more things done. Um, and then they go into our classrooms now. And then, uh, and then I guess even for myself, like I might even say more of my policies might be like, okay, no chat GPT or no, no like co-pilot. And so I think it's, um it's tricky as an instructor because we want to prepare students for their futures and students right now are seeing ai as part of their future like as if they go into software program like software engineering um people there might be might very well be using copilot while on the job while they while they write code um and actually like they see that as part of the future and that may actually be their future. It may not be like the future that um, instructors like us who have been doing this for, for a little while have um, kind of walked, are coming into instructing like, like from before. Um, and so I think, I think the tricky thing for instruction is like helping students have that healthy relationship with AI to say, okay, it's not, it's not like a bad thing it's not something that we need to ban necessarily, um, but here are the limits of it. Here's what you. Here's what you need to do. And I think ultimately, how I feel about it is that um, I think in the end, it's it'll it'll push students to it'll it'll force students to kind of need to be better at self evaluating what they need to learn because they have the choice, right? They have the choice to put their assignments into ChatGPT um, and they can do that. But at the same time, it's kind of on them now to recognize, okay, what's helpful or not for my learning and what what do my instructors recommend but at the end of the day is, is their choice. And that actually has always been their choice. But I think now the choice is, is more in your face than ever. I think that's, I think that's a, a really healthy way of looking at it, right? Like it, and, and what's interesting is we've really given, um, we've talked a lot about giving students agency over their own learning, right? And being able to choose what they learn and how they learn it and, and having that enhance the learning process in a really powerful way. But this is almost like the, the extreme example of that. We've given them so much agency that they can choose not to learn and still get the, the outcome of the grade, right? 
um, in a way that's really convenient and and available twenty four seven, right? So you know how and and this is not something we can reverse, right? Like you can't put AI back in the bottle. It's it's already out and it will be here. So now the question is, how do we adjust, adapt, you know, and and leverage those tools to get back to that desirable outcome that we all have, which is that students are are learning really useful and valuable skills for the future, right? Um, and and it's not an easy problem to solve. I don't think anyone who claims to have solved it is is being really, um, you know, like is really there yet. I, I don't think we're we're at that point where we know how to solve this problem. But I like your point, Sam, about you know, the, these are skills of the future, and like what depending on how much you're going to use them or what your role might might be in the future, you may use more of them all the time. You might use them sometimes, but they're not going away. So how do we deal with them? Yeah, and I wanted to point this to Philip because he actually hinted about talking about skills and earlier in the show, what are your takes on, you know, transitioning skills? Because we all have our opinions of what's going to be the jobs of the future and the future, meaning like 2029 before singularity at the rate things are going like next month like what will i be doing next, next month, month philip <laughs> yeah i mean i think that you know I, I think that just on a meta point you know, just kind of zooming out more you know this space is obviously has a lot of hype there's a lot of press attention there's a lot of um there's a lot of you know thought pieces right so you know kind of it's it's you know i think everyone has opinions on this on this topic and, and maybe what we see in the popular press and in, in in online is the more extreme viewpoints right so just like what we're talking about that's why it's great to have a long-form podcast because i think that the kind of talking points that you know kind of the clickbait talking points are like oh programming will change forever and we need to upend everything those are probably a bit too extreme right and the the more kind of nuanced thoughtful take uh, conversation that we're having here is more realistic i mean I think that, again, it's so hard to predict the future, but, you know, realistically, it seems like more and more companies are going to be using these AI assistants internally, whether, you know, you know, the exact tools they use will depend on, like Kelly mentioned, the privacy policies of the companies, uh, the makers and stuff, and all that stuff needs to be hashed out. You know, I know that large companies are developing their own internal tools, right? So I think Meta just released, they had a paper about this, so it's public. They have a paper about they made their own, you know, they they trained their own large language model on their internal code base, and they're having a bunch of software developers within Meta use it to boost their own productivity, which makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, you know, engineer time is expensive, so if you can make your own software developers at your company more productive in your code base, you're going to have a competitive advantage, and I'm sure other companies are doing the same thing at that scale. So, the life of a professional software developer will involve more and more using these AI tools, whether it's GitHub Copilot or it's a specific one at your company. And there are other, you know, there are other companies like Sourcegraph, Cody, they just released this thing called Cody, which is supposed to train on your own code base, right? So, you know, Sourcegraph is, you know, can index millions of lines of code and they're going to feed that into their LLM and they probably have privacy things saying, you know, we respect all your you know, internal enterprise privacy stuff. So, I think the life of a professional software engineer will involve more and more of these LLMs. And I think that people are going to start getting good at it, right? Like I think as software developers, 
they're going to start getting good at writing prompts and stuff. But my intuition is that still at that fundamental level, kind of teaching computer science, K-12 and college level, I don't think it's going to change a ton just because of, um, you know, everyone has to acknowledge elephant in the room of AI tools. But I think with some tweaks to curriculum, I don't think it will change a ton just because the fundamentals that you want to learn are still fairly stable. I mean, this this debate has been going on for decades, right? So like this idea of, you know, why are we still teaching X language or why are we teaching people to make linked lists or whatever? This is not what you do in industry. You use libraries, you know, like this whole debate about what is teaching computational thinking, computer science versus practical software engineering has been a forever debate. And, you know, it seems like the role, of, you know, one major role of schools, you know, both at the K-12 university level is to teach these fundamentals of computational thinking and computer science, you know, algorithmic thinking and uh, designing algorithms, data structures, all that stuff. So the hope is that with those fundamentals in place, then whatever new libraries and frameworks you have to learn on the job, maybe Sean can speak a bit about this, right? Like, we obviously know that if you get out of college with a bachelor's degree, even a master's or a PhD, and you jump into a company, it's not like you can be productive right away. You have to be onboarded with the company's code base and how they do things and what their infrastructure is. But the hope is that with a good, you know, training and fundamentals, that folks like Sean can onboard you very well, right? And if and and you know, you're going to have to do onboarding at any specific job you're doing. So, you know, perhaps a role of schools. You know, maybe I'm very old school now. Is to teach you those fundamentals that don't change as much. So, maybe I don't think see things changing too much at the teaching level. But then, you know, maybe my my words will just come back to bite me in a few years. <laughs> The other, I mean, the other thing that 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 brings to mind too, and I think Kelly and I have talked about this also, uh, particularly with um, Eric Mathis, is that there's a certain number of students that, you know, no matter how you deliver the information about computer science, they're going to think that this is the greatest thing that they've ever learned, and it's amazing, and they can't wait to dive into it. Right? Like they're a natural fit for this. They just love it, and they, no matter what tools are there at their disposal, they're going to want to try everything and be curious and do all of those those uh, parts. You know, at the opposite end of the spectrum, even if you're the most amazing teacher in the world, you have people who are it's just not for them. It just bounces off and they they don't like it or they don't it's not for them. They don't they're not into it. And that's OK. Also, I think the the students that are at risk is this are, are the students that maybe would discover something interesting or something that they loved or didn't expect to love about coding and computer science in this space. And are we robbing them of that opportunity? by taking away the, you know, the dopamine, right? The, I solved it myself. I figured it out. I use these things. So there's a, an additional dimension to this of the, the type of learner and their personality and their relationship to the, the content that we're teaching them um, and where they kind of fall in that spectrum. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely agree with that. And I think actually this is one area where I think incorporating AI could help um, because I think there's um, right now in programming classes, our, our assignments are very, I would say like structured to a very specific type of person. So a person who likes like solving little puzzles, so to speak, because a lot of programming assignments are like almost like little puzzles. Um, I've seen an example of an assignment um, where 
um, the instructor gives students like some code, but then asks students to do something creative with the code. So like the code produces a little like dot on the screen that moves and it tells students like, okay, now make two dots appear. And then when they collide, like write a story about it. Like tell them, tell us a story about how two friends at the supermarket ran into each other and then said, hey, like, let's get some bananas together. And they walk off and go buy some bananas. Um, so I think, I actually think that if the, if AI tools can give people a different way, a different entry point into programming, um, maybe we can, can actually help those students who um, were hesitant, weren't quite, weren't quite sure like, why they would want to learn programming or what could motivate them to and, and kind of give them that motivation up front. Um, it's optimistic, but I think there's opportunity here to kind of stretch the stretch our imaginations a bit about the first thing people see when they write a program or the first program that people see, what could it do for them? Because right now, the first program that most people see is like print hello world. And I think for a lot of people, that doesn't quite resonate. Yeah. I think for some other people, if they saw, okay, I can use a program to, I don't know, like, um, do something useful for myself. Maybe it's like how to split the bill properly with my friends. Um, then maybe they could, they could imagine themselves becoming programmers because they can see themselves using what they built. It's funny you say that. So I, and, and having taught this, I don't know now how many classes I've done, Sean, like too many, too many basic classes, but, um, like the first four or five weeks of a sixth grade class when you're teaching them all these basic, cause I literally will go through every basic uh, concept in Python in the first six weeks, um, everything except for dictionaries and libraries, right. Um, and functions, I, everything except for that. And it's like that, wow, this is great. This is awesome. And the sixth graders are really excited and they're making stuff, you know, kind of starts pittering a little bit towards the last of the three weeks. Seventh grade, though, there's like this, mm, ugh, ugh, I got to make this up. Sometimes you have this start of decline and you can start seeing the split of, wow, I did this amazing thing to, oh my gosh, I'm back to doing homework. And that's an interesting point that you make, Sam. Like, what if like after you get those really, really fine-tuned basics and you have that vocabulary and you start talking about these little things as if you can sort of add that more, that, that hit, that, that excitement with an AI tool that can help generate that momentum or, you know, split it up. Here's my four weeks of boring concepts. And here we're going to go, bam, now use those concepts and make something really, really cool. And here's my boring concepts and bam, here's make something really cool with this AI tool. It could be a game changer and, you know, putting foundations in there with AI you know, getting those wishy-washy people like myself, <laughs> who's like back on the fence of both sides of the of the team, of both extremes. Um, and so I don't know. That's that's would be interesting. I didn't want to switch real quick, and I know I said a lot, but I wanted to ask real quick with professional development. Like, what were anything of your CS teachers or your university teachers? What kind of professional development and preparedness are they are they getting? in the wake of the supposedly tsunami of AI, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the short answer is I don't think they're getting any, right? I think, that, you know, at the university level, there are some workshops. I think I've seen, you know, Sam, I've seen some seminars in place that it's basically people scrambling and say, like, we don't know what's going on. And then what are you doing? You know, are you setting a policy, an academic honors policy or things? But yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think that looking forward, 
I'm sure that people are going to start coming up with best practices, right? Like the Computer Science Teachers Association, the ACM. I'm sure there are probably work groups being put together now as we speak for like, what is the recommendation for best practices and such? But at this point, it's so early that I mean, it's been less than a year since ChatGPT came out. And, and in that year, so many new tools have come out, right? And things are changing. So I know that's a it's still kind of a wild world now. So that's the note we're ending on, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think we're uh, just about out of time. And I, I know we could probably talk forever about this because there is so much to uh, discuss. Um, I want to say thank you for for joining us and, and bringing us some some information that you've gathered and collected and and compiled for us. Um, it is refreshing to be able to hear the words. We interviewed people. We talked with them. We <laughs> we we gathered information. We got, you know, like a, a sense of what's happening across so many different areas of education right now. Um, it is way better than the sound bites that you referenced, Philip. So thank you both for the work that you're doing to help bring this together and give us some real information about the current state of things. Um, if people want to learn more, um, Philip, you mentioned you had your uh, blog post that was uh, was out today. Um, where could people learn more about um, the work that you're, you're involved in and how you're, um, you're continuing to uh, gather this information? Uh, yeah, you can just search my name on Google and and and, uh, and just go from these blog posts. I think just starting out, th those are great starting points. All right, great. And and Sam, you are uh, newly minted and ready to uh, to teach this fall. Uh, wanted to say good luck to you, and and uh, I'm glad to hear that we've got another uh, great teacher out there joining the uh, the professor ranks. Um, and and wish you the best of luck as you go into it. If there's anything that we can do to help, um, you know, figure out curriculum and and how to incorporate some of these things, you know, you can always uh, reach out to us. and We're happy to help. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for the encouragement, and um, I really do appreciate that offer. Um, all right. So, uh, Kelly, do we have anything going on for our listeners? Anything that we need to uh, share other than to say, everybody, good luck going back to school this fall, and and we're here for you. I have so much to share, but no, we are recording next week. So join us on the the live. We are having Josh Lowe, I believe. Yes, yes. from Edublox. From Edublox, they combined with Anaconda. We have friends at and I have you know I have no I'm just kidding. Sean and I have friends at Anaconda now. <laughs> two two amazing people that we know working at Anaconda, and he's joining us. And they just launched Edublox, which is a kind of a, a nice little switch too, because now instead of having to type out a whole bunch of Python um, words, you can just drop a block, and that's been a process for about five years that and Anaconda has supported him and has taken on the project with him. So he's going to be on the show. So that's a great listen to for everybody else. Sounds good. And I think we are up to, I, I just looked at, I think we've crossed the 450,000 download mark um, on the podcast. So we are, are making good, good progress. Um, thank you everyone for listening. Please remember to share with your friends, um, anybody who um, might get some value out of our show. Um, if you have the chance to leave a review on your favorite podcast player also, whether that's iTunes or Spotify or wherever, um, I think it goes into some big massive algorithm that puts our podcast in front of more people. Um, so let's see what happens. Uh, put a review out there. Um, tell us what you think, and uh, we'll go from there. So um, I think that'll do it for this week. Uh, Philip, thank you. Thank you. Sam, thank you. Um, and we hope to have you back on the show soon.
Thanks so much, everyone. It was a real pleasure. All right. Thanks again. Excellent. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's really, really good to, to have repeat visitors, you know. Um, <laughs> so for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off.